You know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Tell them about punk. What's up, posers? Welcome to Funk Lotto Pod. I am your co-host, Justin Hensley. I am your other co-host, Dylan Hensley. And this is the show where we assign our guests a year, and they choose one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year. Today, we are talking to Tom Shreve, the drummer of the band Arms Like Roses, based out of New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, they just released their EP, Get Some Sleep which I highly recommend everyone check out. Uh, and today, what are we talking about? We are talking about the year 2006 and the album If Only You Were Lonely by Hawthorne Heights. Yeah, very in-depth discussion on 2006's emo post-hardcore scene, all things Victory Records associated from this time period. It's a really fun conversation. Yeah, this was a you know a time period that we talked about before and it tends to always turn into a sprawling conversation Mm -hmm. Uh, a little bit scattered (laughs) but i don't know i think it's all interesting um and you can also head over to our patreon that's patreon.com slash punk lotto pod uh we're recording this a little bit before we actually record our bonus audio i i believe we're planning on a five by five but maybe a three by five if dylan doesn't record us into enough records (laughs) we'll We'll see. It should be a five by five. So uh, that episode will have already been posted by the time you hear this one. So, you know, check it out. It'll be a mystery of what we actually talk about. You can get that for a dollar over there on our Patreon and get access to all of our back audio. And you can follow us on all forms of social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at PunkLottoPod. We have, we've got the SEO on lockdown. It's PunkLottoPod at gmail.com. Substacks. No, wait. It's the other way around with Substack. Punkletopod.substack.com. Punk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And voicemail 202-688-PUNK. Let, drop us a line. Let us know what you think. So enjoy this episode with Tom from Arms Like Roses.
We're joined here today with Tom of the band Arms Like Roses. Tom, how's it going? Uh, it's going all right. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. Have you done any other podcasts before? Uh, I've done quite a few over time in like nice. various different bands I've been in. And like I listen to a ton of podcasts, so it's uh, definitely an art form that I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I, this week alone, I've spent a lot of time talk, thinking about going back to school and... Uh, Doing this podcast has kind of encouraged me to actually go back to school and actually get good at like recording stuff. So, yeah, see, <laughs> I went to school for like a general music business type degree, and um, <laughs> so did I. I had to do a lot of recording classes for that, and recording is like not at all my strong suit. So, uh, I anytime I had to do those classes, I would have to fail and take them over again. And now I'm like, you know, I just wanted to like get a business degree essentially why did i even have to do that but i'm also considering going back to school because like i'm uh i'm 24 and i'm still working at hot topic in the mall and i have a degree so i'm like yeah i should probably uh i don't know should probably uh get more (laughs) of a handle on my life (laughs) (laughs) yeah start now i'm 34 and i don't have a degree uh so i that's why i'm (laughs) thinking about going back now and i work at a target distribution center so oh i worked at target for a while so, oh yeah, yeah, I can relate. I'm I'm 31. I have a music business degree as well, and I work in a restaurant. So, yeah, that's <laughs> that seems to be the average. You. The average, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, what was it? Uh, what's her name from Soccer Mommy? Like her manager told her to drop out of her music business degree course because like she doesn't need it. Like she was. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Because it's all about connections, and, you know, I feel like that band started getting huge when she was, what, like, 19, 20? So, like, at right. that point, it just did not matter. <laughs> you're just, like, eating up your time with something you're going to just learn intuitively anyway from being in it, so. Yep, pretty much exactly. <laughs> but we're not talking about college. Nope. I had a couple questions about Arms Like Roses. Of so, course. you just had a release show for your EP, Get Some Sleep. We did. Uh, how, how was it? How'd it go? It was crazy. Um, it was like somewhere between 100 and 150 uh, kids came out, which was entirely unexpected because it was more or less our first show. Uh, like prior to COVID, we'd played a few shows uh, under the name Summer Camp Crush, which was our old name, because we started the band thinking that it was going to be a little bit more like an indie pop type band. And then as we were writing songs, it ended up being like much heavier and more along like the emo post hardcore lines. So we were like, yeah, that's not going to work anymore. Uh, we also we added a second guitarist, Adam, over the course of the pandemic. So we were basically an entirely new band. And our first show back was just absolutely insane. Like, the most people that I've played to in years, honestly. Uh, So, we're booking a bunch of tours and a bunch of different weekenders and stuff right now, and I'm just really excited to see what comes of it. That's awesome. Was it it weird playing in front of people after the last, what, year and a half of nothing? It was awesome and horrible at the same time, because literally (laughs) the entire day leading up to it, I was like... I was, like, on the verge of throwing up. I was so anxious the entire time. I was like, oh, God. I mean, and partially, I was like, is no one going to come to this show? Like, I-, I don't know. But it ended up being better than any of us could have expected. So it was, uh, I don't know. I think I'm ready to really just, like, head back into it full steam ahead now. That's awesome. I, I haven't had the opportunity to go back to a show yet. 
there it's weird there's there's been shows announced in my area that i've i've really wanted to go to but like they're still not until like august so yeah where are you guys based out of actually i, I have no idea so i'm in north carolina uh dylan is in phoenix about to move to la soon oh, to be cool. la yeah awesome yeah, yeah i i love la yeah, the only other show that I've been to so far, other than the one that we played, was I saw Craig Owens from Chiodos play acoustic uh, out in Rhode Island, and uh, <laughs> that that was pretty fun. It was it was interesting. Uh, I'm I'm a big Chiodos fan, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The last show I went to was in like February of 2020. So no, yeah, yeah, it was February. Yeah, looking forward to it. I think the next thing I'm gonna go to is maybe. Maybe Boy Sets Fire. Oh, oh that's man. In September. <laughs> yeah. Boy Sets Fire is great. Yeah. And then, no, I might go to end it first if if that show winds up happening. But regardless, this this is all <laughs> yeah, unnecessary information. Well, that's cool. How has the reaction to the new EP been? Uh, you said it was a little bit of a change in styles for you. Yeah. I mean, all the songs on the EP, we'd mostly been playing live previously it was i I think the thing about our ep is that it's kind of all over the place right now like the songs that we've been writing for our lp and like releases after have been much more like cohesive like we dip into about a thousand different styles (laughs) over the the course of that ep and like there's there's the one song waiting that's basically just like a riot girl type punk song that like pretty much nothing that we're writing now sounds anything remotely like that. Uh, We just all came from extremely different backgrounds, but that being said, I I think we're a lot more, like, excited about the music that we're writing now, because it it sounds more like, you know, a mature adult band, whatever that could mean. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean... A bunch of people on r slash emo and a bunch of, like, various other forums on the internet that none of us go on were really excited about it, uh, we found out kind of by surprise. Um, and that's that's really more than we ever could have expected, so I, I think it's going well. Well, awesome. Yeah, it's funny, I was, I think I even, like, googled your band today specifically to see, oh, because I was trying to remember where I had found your band first. Yeah. And I think I figured out that it was The Alternative did a article on your music video for 12 a.m yes that is correct uh zach over at the alternative has been super supportive of us um he you know did that premiere he did a review for us for a different site and has just been like one of the uh journalism people who's been uh kind of kind of bumping us up a little bit so we're really grateful to uh to him and to the alternative for sure that's awesome that, that's that's one of my weekly resources as far as like finding new music new releases especially from bands i'm i'm unfamiliar with so yeah shout out to the alternative for bringing new bands to everyone's attention i mean for me i i mostly discover bands like i don't i don't really read a lot of publications bizarrely because i've kind of been like off put by um music journalism the past several years because i feel like it's kind of a hive mind where everyone just like feels pressure to like the same things so usually i just do like spotify deep dives you know um various small labels that i like i'll like dig through their catalog see what they're doing um yeah that's uh (laughs) that's sort of where i am on that front yeah that's kind of that's kind of what i do like i use a combination of uh, a couple sites that i trust basically alternatives one no echo is a good one because for hardcore stuff and then who else do i like to use a couple more i guess they're more blogs than anything so like those aren't as beholden to what's stereo gum and pitchfork all saying about this record you know yep yeah 
We got and this I definitely, pitch, and we need to maintain this relationship with this uh, this PR person, or they're going to stop mm-hmm. pitching us good stuff. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I found that like at the end of the year lists is when I'm most frustrated with those because I'm like, you're all you all have the same bands on your end of year list. Yes. Yes. Exactly. There's something to be said about like a mutually agreed upon great album, but it shouldn't be like. Well, half the list is the same records. Like, yep. No, I I fully agree. That's kind of why I stopped keeping up with a lot of publications. But the alternative kind of covers everything. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I follow a lot of labels on Bandcamp. That's a good way. Anytime they have something new, I'll get an email notification for them. So. Oh, yeah, definitely. My, my Friday mornings consist of about from 9 a.m. to about 12 p.m. just, like, looking for new music. So... That may change if I go back to school, I guess, but... <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> so, you mentioned you expanded to a five-piece. Was that what precipitated the change in style and the name change? Uh, no, we'd really been thinking about doing that a long time before we added Adam. It was just, like, the next logical step, because we knew we wanted to sound bigger and heavier and, you know, have spacier parts and whatnot, and uh, we definitely needed another guitarist in order to make that happen at all. Um, the name change was sort of just, like... I mean, at the very least, myself and our singer, Estelle, like, realized... Like, we talked to each other about it. We realized that when people asked for our band name and we had to say that we were in a band called Summer Camp Crush, we were literally <laughs> embarrassed about it. So we were like, yeah, I don't know. And then once our bass player, who had came up with the name, was like, hey, how do you guys feel about a name change? We were like, oh, thank God, we don't have to feel like we're gonna upset anyone <laughs> anymore by saying that. Um... <laughs> Uh, the the sound thing was just naturally what happened. I think when we got together, we originally didn't really know what we were going to sound like, and we, we sort of came up with the name assuming that we would sound like one thing, and it, it just sort of organically evolved into something else. But I'll say, like, when we formed the band initially... I, I was the only one who knew everyone. Like, I was the uh, the link between everyone, and none of them had ever met each other before. Our guitarist, Zila, was my roommate in college. Uh, and we had briefly played... We had, like, a weird band uh, at school that we did that was just, like, noise rock, but we also played, like, new metal covers, and it was just, like, us goofing around, essentially. And uh, that, that band was called My Body is a Temple of Doom. <laughs> um... <laughs> Then our singer Estelle used to be in a couple uh, different like punk uh, and like Riot Girl ish bands over the years. One of which uh, my old uh, like Twinkle Emo band had played a show with years ago. And uh, our, our bass player Nina was in like an indie pop project called Stampeder, who I'd played a million shows with over the years uh, in Connecticut. So. Um, I kind of just, it kind of all just fell into place because Estelle was from Mass and was moving back to Connecticut and basically just hit me up one day and was like, hey, I don't know anyone in Connecticut. You want to make music? And uh, I was like, yeah, definitely. Um, Because I, you know, even though I had only seen their band like once or twice before, like the second I heard their voice, I was like, this is somebody that I need to be making music with. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, at the same time, Nina, our bass player, had like just started to get back into doing music after taking a hiatus for a while and had also like right around the same time hit me up and been like hey you want to like do a project together we live close it would be fun and it it really just fell into place super nicely so that's uh that's that story i suppose 
what uh what is the connecticut scene like uh you said you're from new haven right yeah that's where uh that's where me and zila went to school that's where uh most of the band lives i uh i live up by waterbury right now which is a little bit up north but yeah the connecticut scene is a lot different uh because like than it was pre-pandemic, at least, because compared to, like, most of the bands and most of the people that are involved now, like, I'm ancient. Like, I'm super <laughs> old. It's all, it's all like, really young teens, and it's cool, because, like, it, it was kind of dying before, but now it seems like a lot of young kids are uh, coming out of the woodwork just randomly and uh, and playing music. I'd say that there, the scene, uh, I'm trying to think of, like, we, we don't have any, like, super big bands at the moment, is the thing. Like, there's no, like, I can't think of any one or two bands that would, like, bring out a whole bunch of kids right now. I think at the moment, like, shows are super well attended, but just because, you know, everything opened up back up, like, no restrictions now, so everyone is just eager to go to anything and do anything. Um, but the scene is strong. Like, for a couple of the tours we're doing, I've hit up other places where people have said that, like there just aren't shows happening in those places anymore because everything's shut down and there are just no bands anymore. But there's a lot going on here, and I'm, I'm grateful for it, to say the least. I'm a, I'm a little bit jaded because I've been, I've been involved in the local scene here for about a decade now. I've been playing in, a ba- in bands for about 10 years, and I've, like, a lot of people who know me from the internet especially have seen that I've dealt with, like, so much drama and, like, getting kicked out of bands and all kinds of stuff over the years and uh i think this band is like i'm finally it's like the most secure point i've been in where i'm just <laughs> like this is this is it this is like what i want to do i think yeah uh do you know the band god program uh i've seen them before i don't know them personally i i've seen them around i think their music is great i think they're awesome but they're definitely in a very different scene than we are yeah yeah i was i was trying to remember because i was like we've had somebody on from connecticut recently and i couldn't remember and and we've we had god program we had uh, marla and sean from that band on so that was the connection there i was trying to make yeah they're a cool band i saw them with a wrist meat razor i think hell yeah yeah I, i love that band as well are they where are they from they're from they're from down south i think they're from florida i believe Oh really? Yeah, oh. yeah. I I could be very wrong, but that's what I uh, yeah. that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Just curious. Uh oh, D.C. Washington D.C. That's where they started. So oh, word. So I was very wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, but they're also like spread out and across like Louisville, Vegas, Virginia, Delaware. Weird, strange. That's hardcore anyway. for you. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so you've been playing. You have you been playing drums the entire time? You've been in bands? Uh, no. So this is, this is, I played drums in bands when I was in high school. Uh, I was in a few different bands, uh, mostly like screamo, like scrams type bands. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not quite as into that type of music anymore. There are a few bands that I still love, but I mostly kind of outgrew it. And once I got to college, I, uh, I played guitar and sang in like a twinkly emo type band called Carlos Danger that I did for a few years. And then, um... The last band I was in before this one, I don't want to name because I'm not, I'm not. They're still a band. I I was it was a pop punk band that I was the singer for. <laughs> I kind of left on not very good terms at the beginning of this year, and they're they're still doing whatever. But I was I was mostly singing and playing guitar for the past like several years, and drums are my main instrument. They're the one that I'm best at, so I'm like I'm happy to be doing that again. I think it's really where I belong. Awesome. Uh, what's next for Arms Like Roses for the rest of the year? I guess I assume there's some more shows lined up. We have so much going on. It's kind of crazy. 
so we just recorded an acoustic EP that is going to be out at the end of August with one acoustic version of a song that was on the EP, uh, one cover, and one unreleased track. Um, it's acoustic, but we all played on it. Like, there's bass and auxiliary percussion, and we all do vocals and all that kind of nice stuff. Um, we're playing a couple shows around Connecticut and Boston, like the general Boston area, to support that release. Um, we are doing a tour in November with the band Sinking from Massachusetts, who um, are another really good, like, 90s type, you know, Sunny Day Real Estate Mineral esque band. And uh, we're probably going to be doing some longer tours in the winter and in the summer of 2022 and we're recording our lp uh at silver bullet studios with chris uh teddy from the world is um at the beginning of august so that's going to be out probably uh early next year um that's that's all the stuff we're doing so it's it's definitely a lot (laughs) that's awesome yeah that's a lot going on but uh well cool i'm looking forward to hopefully maybe seeing you on tour at some point and uh, hearing what you wind up doing next for the record yeah i'm i'm stoked i'm i'm grateful that anybody's you know looking forward to it at all yeah awesome uh cool let's get into the rest of the show then so uh premise of our show is we assign our guests a year and they choose one punk hardcore emo or punk adjacent record record from that year so before we get to the one you actually chose uh we gave you the year 2006 yes and what are some other records that came out that year that you you considered talking about there were so many in mind honestly like i really had to very carefully decide i think my favorite album to come out in the year 2006 is probably dying is your latest fashion by escape the fate but Ronnie Radke is a bit of a controversial <laughs> character, so I was kind of like, I don't, I don't really want to upset anyone. I don't know if I should do that one. Another one of my favorites from that year is Building a Better by the band Park, who are a very underrated, uh, like, central Illinois emo band. Hmm. Uh, my, my thing with that one was I didn't know if I wanted to do a band that obscure because almost no one knows who they are. Um, but they're super underrated. If you're into Alkaline Trio or Bayside or anything like that, I totally recommend checking them out. Crisis by Alexis on Fire was another one of my favorites that I really considered. Same with, uh, Louder Now by Taking Back Sunday, who are one of my top five favorite bands of all time. Uh, my, my thing with those two albums is they're just so mainstream. I was like, eh, you know, I need to find a middle ground, choose something that, you know, (laughs) maybe, maybe not a bunch of other people have talked about yet. And, um, yeah. What's the single on, what's the single on Louder Now? Is that one? Oh, it's Liar. Yeah. Liar and, uh, Make Damn Sure sure. were both massive. And there was one other one I think I was going to mention. Well, there were a couple... That uh, there were a couple of my personal favorite albums that I thought had come out in 2006 that I actually realized were from 2005. The first ones that came to mind being a (laughs) A fever you can't sweat out by Panic at the Disco, and Mm. uh, Everything in Transit by Jack's Mannequin. There were there were definitely others that I I can't think of right now. And then after after we set everything up, there's one album from 2006 that I've been listening to very frequently, which is. Thirty Seven Everywhere by the band Punchline, which is just like a really good solid uh, pop punk album with some vocals by uh, Anthony from Bayside on it as well. So um, I think those are those are my other like real uh, two thousand six favorites. You know, we we talked about that Jack's Mannequin record with uh, Bad Sandy, yeah. uh, the lead singer of that band. And oh, cool! 
they're uh they're from New Hampshire, so not terribly far from you. Oh, our our singer is like kind of from the New Hampshire area sort of. Like worked yeah. worked at a record store up there for a while. So we're probably going to be pl- be playing there soon. So sure. that's absolutely cool to keep in mind. Yeah, they're they're really great. They're like a power pop sort of pop punk band. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Excellent. If you if you can at least see them, that's I, 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 I would love to. <laughs> um Dylan, I like to usually ask this, what uh what would you have selected if you were the guest on the show? Hmm. This is a year where I was 16. Uh, I turned 16 in 2006, so I was paying a lot of attention to music, what was coming out, getting really into punk and hardcore, and was you know pretty into metal and stuff like that at this time. So I have a lot of memories and associations with everything on this list, like this is one of those years where we could really spend hours and hours on just the charts. So this was, this is what I I would have to, I feel like I would have to revert to classic format and draw something randomly (laughs) just to be able to pick. But you mentioned Alexis on fire, uh, crisis. That was, that was a really, really big record for me. Oh yeah. As a teenager. Um, I would I would go with I guess I'll go with the other maybe one of the other really obvious choices as far as big records uh no hero no heroes by converge I bought that record when it came out or probably within that month that it came out mm-hmm. this was the first converge record that I had bought like I had heard clips of their music and basically like decided that I was going to be a fan of them like it was just <laughs> like I like what I've heard on the samples at the little the little listening station at the uh, at Barnes and Noble, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like I I think I maybe watched a video f- some of their videos on YouTube, and I was like, I like this band. I'm just gonna buy this CD that came out. Yeah, um, I first I first heard Converge when I was like very deeply in my my screamo era, so like late high school, early college, from like the earlier records, like a uh, petitioning the empty sky was always my favorite. Um, but I think like them specifically have led me to liking a lot more of the stuff that I like now. Uh, like I'm like the stuff that I listen to all the time is like, uh, like poison the well and, uh, Zayo Norma Jean. And I, I wasn't really into any of that when I was younger. And I think like it took going through my screamo era to discover like really, really good metalcore. But, um, <laughs> I got, I got to see converge a couple of years ago and I've, I've been like dying to see them again since. Yeah, like Converge are like I don't know, like the the gold standard for like metalcore, I guess technically, but they're also so experimental. You know? They, oh yeah, they, they do so much. Like that tour they just announced too. It's like, oh, who else was on that tour? Oh, uh, with the Torch, Torch and Meshuga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. I I saw them when they toured with um, who is it? Why am I blanking on the name? It was oh, Neurosis was yeah. who I saw oh, them with. Yeah. I saw um, Bill, did you go to that tour? I went to yeah, I saw them in Phoenix on that tour. That was I don't remember who else played for. I caught one of the one of the bands before. It was like a very artsy post metal band. I don't remember their name. Yeah. yeah. I was pretty bored. <laughs> yes, same, honestly. <laughs> was it Russian Circles? Who went Russian no. Circles? No. No, Russian Circles are good. <laughs> it, it was a name uh, that I recognized, but it wasn't a band that I'd really ever listened to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, neurosis. Ah, neurosis uh, yeah. is incredible. Neurosis, <laughs> converge and neurosis. Like that's that's two of my all time favorite favorite mm-hmm. heavy bands. And 
I've seen I've seen Neurosis twice, and I've seen it converge a few times, and it's just every time it's it's incredible. It's there's such a good there are such a good both of them are such good bands on stage. Like they mm-hmm. really command your attention. I also went to uh, one of the memorial shows for uh, Caleb from Cave In when they had uh, mm-hmm. Cave In playing with Nate Newton from Converge mm-hmm. on bass. Um, and that was also like similarly just wild. <laughs> um, I feel like because we're about to talk about Hawthorne Heights and so far I've talked about mostly like <laughs> mall core bands. I really need to get in there that I do like a lot of different types of music <laughs> as well. So I'm sort of like, um, just being like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know Converge and Cave In and Neurosis and all these bands too, <laughs> but I got, I got to get my cred in <laughs> <laughs> maybe just a little bit. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I, if, if, if I were the guest, I'd probably pick, you know, I mentioned them earlier. I'd probably pick the, uh, Boy Sets Fire record that came out in 2006, uh, Misery Index. It was, like, the last record at that time before they, like, took a, I don't know if they ever broke up or they just took, like, a really extended hiatus. They didn't release new music for a good while. And that one was, like, a weird, like, we're gonna try everything, and it's all sorts of different things. Uh, I actually re-listened to it today, just to, just to see what was going on with that record, and, uh, it's still fun. I love that record. That's a record that, like, I bought that CD, and I had never heard a single Boy Sets Fire song. I think I just was like, yeah, this is a band I'll probably like, and just bought it. I don't remember, like, what motivated me to do it. I wanted to buy something really badly, I guess, and I was like... Well, I've heard of this band, and I like... I don't know. I like the bands that are associated with them, so I'll that get this is, one. <laughs> that is exactly also how I found out about Boy Sets Fire, was I found uh, Tomorrow Come Today at, like, Goodwill, and I was just like, <laughs> oh, this is a band that plays with bands I like. I'll, I should listen to this. Yeah. Um, but I think the funniest thing about Boy Sets Fire also is that, they're, like, they're not very, like accessible music i think to a mainstream audience <laughs> by any means but they're randomly on like all kinds of soundtracks from this era yeah. like they're on they're in a bunch of video games they're on the the daredevil with uh ben affleck <laughs> soundtrack and uh it's it's a little bit strange but hey good for them getting that uh getting that sync money it was uh they were on wind up which was the creed record label okay so that's that yeah that, <laughs> that would make sense also, Windup plays a, a part in the band we're talking about today. Yes, I was going to say Hawthorne Heights. I believe <laughs> we're on that label very briefly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, let's let's move into the one you actually picked. So we gave you 2006, and you chose Hawthorne Heights. If only you were lonely. We're falling faster. This is the last year.
the album. So they formed in Dayton, Ohio in 2001, released February 26th on uh, 2006 on Victory Records. This is their second full-length album. The personnel on this record is Micah Carley on guitars, Casey Calvert on guitar, and unclean vocals, as the lyrics put them. Yes. <laughs> JT Woodruff on vocals and guitar, Aaron Buccarelli on drums, and Matt Ridnour on bass. And the album was produced by David Bendith, who has done albums by Vertical Horizon, SR-71, Breaking Benjamin, Paramore, and the Red Jumpsuit Apparatus. So he was kind of known for uh, this type of record at that point. Yes. And lastly, there's some additional piano by Sebastian Davin. So that is I'll one that, that is one that I did not know. <laughs> but um, I'm actually meant to look up Sebastian Davin. Do you know that name off the top of your head? I don't. No. Okay. Yeah, it was just like some guest instrumentation there um oh apparently he's in breaking benjamin so there we go <laughs> wow so oh, that is very funny because the past like couple weeks or so i think i've decided that the diary of uh, of jane by breaking benjamin is the greatest song ever written by man <laughs> and i've been trying to convince everyone around me like dude breaking benjamin is actually sick and i'm not joking um so i could use this as proof i can be like yo break breaking benjamin is sick <laughs> breaking benjamin came out at a time where i was like tired of the radio so like they were definitely not a band that i uh i was ever really in I, my sphere <laughs> the thing is i wasn't into it at the time like i didn't listen to anything like that when they were coming out with this stuff but now like because i've always ke- i've always really kept up with like warp tour like hot topic metalcore like now you have <laughs> bands like motionless and white and ice nine kills and stuff who like list breaking benjamin as one of their biggest influences so i went back and i was like yo this makes sense this is this is sick <laughs> which i guess makes sense you work in hot topics so you're gonna s- hear a lot of those kind of bands being influenced by it just in the store play alone so oh, yeah that eh, makes sense i i just don't subject myself to <laughs> much uh breaking benjamin or inspired bands <laughs> i guess i should expand my horizons a little bit uh well cool so the very first thing i like to ask our guests is what made you choose this album in particular um there were a lot of reasons hawthorne heights is like really really like one of the most pivotal and influential bands to me getting into punk music and music in general because i want to say when i was i i got into everything like a few years late for the most part like i started really getting into music around 2008 or 2009 when i was in middle school and, um, I mean, a little bit before that, I was into, like, the very, very mainstream bands. Like, I, I liked Weezer, Blink-182, Jimmy Eat World, uh, Fall Out Boy, and Panic at the Disco, like, from from the time that I was young. Um, but after that, you know, once I really... Because I didn't really start using the internet until I was in middle school. And it was once, once I started using the internet more and, like, um, you know, making accounts on Pandora and YouTube and what would later become spotify because i was like a very very early spotify user as well um i just dove into all these bands and i'd say the the next like the next step after those bands that got me into everything else was it was two bands it was hawthorne heights and something corporate were really the two that led me into like this whole world of you know everything and uh when i was young i was like i was actually scared to go into hot topic at other stores like that that played like loud music because the screaming freaked me out 
Like, I think I was just, I was used to adults yelling at me. <laughs> it just sort of, I was like, I don't know, fight or flight response. <laughs> um, but Hawthorne Heights was the first band. The first song I heard was actually not Ohio is for Lovers. The first song I heard was Nikki FM. Uh, I heard it in the car with my dad because my dad always kept like modern rock radio on. And that was um, something that was happening at the time. And uh, Weird. It, it was like... <laughs> I remember that being the first time that I really understood why the screaming was there rather than feeling like I was just being yelled at. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what led me to, to punk and heavier music. And they're a band that I've kept up with since because, honestly, I, I think that most of their discography is very good, and I think that they've sort of done a good job with keeping up with the times. Uh, now they're on Pure Noise. They put out a record a couple years ago called Bad Frequencies that was like more you know less theatrical more like alexis on fire type post-hardcore that i I just thought was super good so um they're a band that i've kept up with if if not you know yeah i even though i still think that their music is great if not just because you know they were the band to like get me into anything heavier so um that's that that's very important to me and that's why i chose this album nice uh dylan do you have any hawthorne heights preconceptions before you listen to this record yeah, I mean, so they're a band that I was aware of. I mean, like I said, I, I was 16 uh, when this came out, so I was definitely paying attention to this kind of music, um, but I was definitely not into this kind of music, um, even though, well, I don't know. I was and I wasn't. <laughs> it was the kind of thing where it was like, we listened to a lot of metalcore mm-hmm. from this time period, and we came from being really into like Christian rock and Christian punk bands uh, that all kind of sound like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was, there was this mentality, this kind of like hoser, uh, I guess, <laughs> purist mentality um, that like, Oh, I liked good stuff, not mainstream stuff or, you know, like <laughs> crappy emo, whatever, you know, <laughs> teenage butthead. Yeah. opinion i had of them so it, they in my mind have always kind of been the go-to example for what i would have thought then as a mediocre average emo band like that was that's kind of my like if you asked me to name a 2000 mid 2000s emo band that's like not one of the big ones i would mm-hmm. go straight to like you know Taking Back Sunday, Fallout Boy, the, My Chemical Romance, those are the ones that everyone knows. If you were yeah. to go just below that surface, I would say, I would go Hawthorne Heights. Like, that's the band that comes to mind as, like, exemplifying the whole mid-2000s mall emo, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um. So all of that, all of that preconception going into this record definitely made me not thrilled for it, but I know that... <laughs> We've done, especially in in this past year, we've done a lot of stuff from this time period that I've always associated, and some of it, I'm like, that's actually pretty good. Some of it's like, that's really good. You know, not all of it. There's definitely been a few records that we've talked about where it's like, yeah, this just doesn't work. Um, I'm interested. What what do you think were some of the best ones that you've (laughs) rediscovered through doing this? Um, what did, what was it that we we mentioned earlier? Um, we did we did Jack's mannequin. Well, yeah, the Jack's mannequin that was like not the same sound, but I definitely no. associated it by 
the same scene. So that was one where it was like, this is actually really good. Yeah, basically, like, everyone I know who I would never expect to be into that kind of music is, like, discovering them lately. Like, as of the past year, I've had a bunch of random people hit me up and be like, do you know Jack's Mannequin? And I'm like, yeah, that's one of my favorite bands. They'll be like, oh, I just listened to that record, and it's actually very good. Like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it is. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think it's because of that, that kind of haze of scene that was over everything that was associated. So it was... If you weren't into those bands and into that scene, you're not going to pick up on the differences between all of the bands. You're going to be like, it's all AP pop punk to me or whatever. So it was, and I've heard Hawthorne Heights singles and seen some of their music videos since then. It's not like I'm like, I forgot what they sounded like. Like I definitely knew what they sounded like going into it. But my my expectation was that I was going to not like it, and I really landed right in the middle on it, honestly. It was yeah. just kind of like, there are good moments and interesting parts, and overall the sound is not something that I'm like into, but I also am much older, <laughs> more mature, and can recognize, <laughs> like... It's just fine. It's not mine. Like, it's just not mine. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I totally feel that. So, I guess I'll go into my, like, preconceived notions about what Hawthorne Heights was before listening to this record. So, you know, like, I, I 2006, I was in college. So, I was shifting away from my metalcore phase into my, like, still in, like, a metal phase and but then also shifting more into like punk uh it'd probably take another year for me to be like hey i like emo now which you know if you knew me back then i was not an emo fan for dumb scene reasons obviously um so like hawthorne heights were a man like i knew the name i knew of them but i probably hadn't heard any of their songs Probably in 2006. If I did, it was totally in passing, like maybe watching Fuse or something, and they were just like on in the other room while I wasn't really paying attention. So I like, I kind of had an idea of what style of music they were, but I just was not like, I just didn't listen to them. So yeah. like my my first like really distinct memory of this band is when I uh, had later failed out of college and was working at a Barnes and Noble in the music department, and we got this album in and we got both of the covers because like this record has two covers yep and i was like why do we have we've got two copies of this wait is this two different records no it's the same record <laughs> like why do we have what uh, i think someone specially ordered it i don't know who but because we didn't really get that kind of thing in a barnes and noble music department yeah you know, we were getting more like uh oh you want some andrea bocelli or uh, some uh <laughs> <laughs> this is a little bit before Adele, but Adele was definitely Nora Jones, like that kind of thing. Um, but even then, like I still hadn't listened to them. So uh, I guess later on, I through osmosis or something, I was just like, uh, I was aware of what kind of band they were. They were one of the post-hardcore emo bands that would like clean sing and like throw in some occasional like screams on like the choruses. Like that was kind of extent of my knowledge so listening to this album was the first time i've listened to an entire hawthorne heights song let alone 
an entire album. So, wow. uh, very, yeah, u- unique. And Dylan, you're right. You know, we have kind of covered a lot of similar style stuff. We're from the same time period. Um, the only other stuff that we did, we did like an angels and airways record mm-hmm. from like Oh five. And then there's like a senses fail album, which is probably the closest sounding to this one. Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm seeing them together in a few months actually. <laughs> right. So like that makes, that makes total sense. Yeah. And they're doing similar things. I'd probably say senses fail are probably more on the hardcore side. Like I guess maybe, or maybe like a 50, 50, like hardcore emo Census Fail are definitely a little bit more aggressive <laughs> in yeah. a lot of ways. More, um, they were punkier for sure. Yeah, yeah. So the episode we did with God Program was the Census Fail record that we talked about. I, I think so. I, I did see that. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's super cool. <laughs> so it's it's funny that like oh both our Connecticut guests have uh, picked the same like, style <laughs> both, of record. Both, to both talk of the about. Connecticut guests uh, <laughs> wear a lot of eyeliner. <laughs> and are very sad because there's nothing in Connecticut. <laughs> so, um, and in that episode, I distinctly remember saying, "Is like I kind of miss this style of the sing, scream, very melodic choruses, like that kind of thing." Um, I w- I'm not saying that I would necessarily want like that's what every band should sound like in like, <laughs> yeah. emo today. But like I'd like one or two new bands that are doing that kind of thing, you know. There's there are a couple out there. There's this one band from the UK called Static Dress that everybody is like kind of hyped up about that do that. There was there was one band from Ohio that were doing it called uh Dark Spring that actually sounded extremely similar to Hawthorne Heights that I was like crazy excited about, but they put out their record and then like immediately dissolved because of like crazy inner band drama somebody was like it involved like a restraining order and stuff i heard about and i was like super (laughs) i was super disappointed because i was like i love this style of music and no one does it and like the one band that does has like this crazy like horror movie thing going on within them (laughs) but yeah you know i don't know you win some you lose some (laughs) yeah it seems like the closest thing we're getting is the more like fallout boy paramore style stuff like like pink shift from baltimore who yeah, are they, great there's that band's really good there's a meet me at the altar everybody's super mm-hmm. stoked about um there's there's got to be one or two others that, i mean hot mulligan is like kind of in that vein too i think they're super good this band in her own words from los angeles are very fallout boy and they're they're awesome but yeah like i, I don't know there hasn't there hasn't even been like as much nostalgia i think for like the screamier type bands i mean you have a lot of like i don't know somebody that i watch on um youtube a lot is that dude the punk rock mba Mm -hmm. and uh (laughs) he kind of annoys me sometimes because i feel like (laughs) i feel like a lot of it like he's very knowledgeable about metal and hardcore definitely but when it comes to like emo and you know more like scene stuff he kind of doesn't know what he's talking about sometimes because i remember he did a video about the metalcore revival when he's talking about you know like the type of bands that god program would play with like see you space cowboy and wrist beat mm-hmm. razor and he's <laughs> like yeah because these bands you know they sound like alisana or something and I'm, I'm thinking like they don't sound anything like that at all no. they just they just sound no. like norma jean <laughs> like yeah there's there's a big norma jean core revival but there's no right. like <laughs> there's no sing scream core revival <laughs> well that's yeah a, I, I mean to these bands credit that's hard to do 
it yeah. is hard yeah. to do. Yeah, especially if you're this. If it's like one vocalist, like two vocalists, like one's the screamer, one's the singer. That's a little bit easier. But if you're a vocalist who can sing and like really sing, and then scream on top of that, like shifting between those two things is not easy to do. Mm-hmm. The the prime example of that I think is Shane from Silverstein, which is also like another very similar band. He is incredible at both. And uh, every time that I've seen them, I've just been like, my God, <laughs> like, <laughs> I would give anything to be able to do that. But speaking of uh, speaking of singing and screaming when it comes to this album. So one thing I want to say, like, obviously, as I'm sure you guys found out researching this album, uh, Casey Calvert, the guitarist and, and screaming vocalist, pretty shortly after this album came out, died of an accidental overdose because of... Um, prescription drugs that were uh misprescribed and it was a a lethal combination he uh yeah and obviously that's that's devastating it's like very very depressing to read about and i think in a lot of their music since then they've been very a lot of it has paid tribute to casey like on almost every album there's at least one song that that pays tribute to him in some way and one thing that I think kind of, it's weird because one thing that I think did kind of turn people away from this band initially and make them, you know, a lot of like the, the heads who even then may have enjoyed a band like Bayside or Census Fail, um, kind of like push Hawthorne Heights to the side was the fact that the screaming was so like, like, like so, (laughs) so like guttural and like processed sounding almost, (laughs) I, um, and I honestly think that Hawthorne Heights would have been looked at as a very different band if they didn't have that style of screaming and if some of the production was a little bit different. Especially on the, their first, the one before this, the one that they really took off on, The Silence in Black and White, is a record that while I love the songs on it, I think the production is pretty god-awful, frankly. It's like really, really bad production. If only Real Only is definitely a step up. It's much bigger sounding. It like mm-hmm. they were literally playing arenas touring on this album, and it sounds like it was made for that, which I think definitely um, is why I like this one a little bit better than the one that came before it. <laughs> on this album you know and all the other bands that were playing similarly sized venues at the time still do more or less and hawthorne Mm -hmm. heights are one of the bands that don't Mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of an interesting thing to discuss 
Yeah, it's funny because I looked at the. I was reading about this record, and it was like I, I wrote it down here too. It, it was like on the Billboard like t- you know top two hundred albums chart. It was like number three, like. And then, like, number one on the top independent char- album charts, which I can see that. But, like, number three overall on the Billboard 200? Yeah, that's, absolutely that's, insane for a band that sounds like this. <laughs> this record's certified gold, too. Yep. Uh, and so was the record before, too. It's just like, how? <laughs> like, it doesn't really make a ton of sense unless it was just piggybacking off of the, like, My Chemical Romance did the Black Parade this year, which was a massive record. There's like a plain white tease record that came out this year. Is this is that the one with Hey There Delilah on it? Um, no, actually. The, the funny thing is, it's funny you bring that up because I'm also like one of the only massive plain white tease fans left as well. Like that's also a band that I love immensely. <laughs> hey There Delilah came out on their um, 2004 record, I believe, or 2005. Oh. I think it was 05. Yeah, it was their 05. It was uh, All That We Needed was the record with that song on it. And that didn't start breaking the charts until 2007. That song didn't start to get big until almost two years after it came Weird. out. Um, so, yeah, the, the record around this time that Plain White Tees did was uh, Every Second Counts, which is another very good one. But, yeah, those two were definitely pushing the genre super into the mainstream but at the same time i think the thing with hawthorne heights was like you know even then i think that kids related to the aesthetic of my chemical romance and related to like the darkness of it but i don't know how much they were actually relating to the lyrics themselves in the black parade like (laughs) you know i i could be wrong but you know, and I'm I'm definitely I I'm not huge on the Black Parade, but I'm definitely a My Chem fan. I just prefer their earlier music quite a bit more. But you know, there there's this general you know uplifting message to it, and you know the outcasts you know having their moment message to it. But I think Hawthorne Heights lyrically was one that teens would more specifically relate to in terms of lyrics. Yeah. I think that's what really drew them to it because it's very specific, like about breakups about you know um having a bad relationship with your parents like whatever and it's done in a it's done in a more tactful way than a lot of the mainstream bands in the past had been doing it like you know i can't even listen to stuff like simple plan and good charlotte because it's like when they when they sing about those issues it's literally just like I hate my parents or like my ex-girlfriend sucks. <laughs> and it's like, it just makes me cringe. It's like Hawthorne Heights. I think we're doing it in a bit more of like a universally relatable, like poetic way. I'm not, I'm not saying that the lyrics are like the most poetic thing in the universe. Cause they're most certainly not. But like, I think that they're great for what they are. <laughs> when we talked about the census fail record, I remember texting Justin probably like four songs into it. I was like, it, is every song on this about hating women? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It literally like, is. <laughs> there's just <laughs> that that like that has made a lot of this time period age very poorly. That that attitude and the way that a lot of those people wrote songs and and I mean like you know on the one hand you kind of get it because like a lot of them were basically teenagers when they were doing this and like they just weren't very mature and smart and you make them a popular artist and all of this stuff goes to their head. Like you give a 20 year old, a record label and 
there's like a 50-50 shot he's going to write a bunch of dumb shit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is one thing that I love about Hawthorne Heights as well, is because they weren't doing the I want to kill my ex-girlfriend thing. Exactly. And, I mean, there's a reason for that, and it's because they were all, like, 30 when this record came out. So they were, like, much older than the rest of the bands in that scene. So they were doing doing something pretty different, I think. And it it was more universally relatable for a lot of people. And I think that's why they were really so big at that point in time. It's funny because I saw a picture of them that was like fairly recently and I was like, wow, they look a lot older than I expected them to. Like, this is more like a more recent picture. Yeah, I I mean, JT JT has like a teenage kid. Right. Because I think one of the coolest things, like being 24 and never really having been in a band, like my my last band that I was in was signed and stuff, but like it didn't really make a lot of a difference. And at this point, I'm just like... You know, I'm this old and I've never really, you know, gotten where I want to with music. And everyone that I look up to was like famous by the time they were 17. So I'm basically like, yeah, it's over for me. It's done. I should stop trying. (laughs) And then I I look at Hawthorne Heights and I'm like, in this style of music they were making, these guys were 30 and they still managed to absolutely get massive. Like that's a that's a little bit of a beam of hope for me. (laughs) Yeah. So we really haven't even talked much about like this record specifically. Uh, you talked a little bit about the lyrics. Uh, I, I was shocked to learn that this is a concept album. It's essentially about a relationship where the guy was forced to move away with his parents. I think that's the the basic premise of the record. And so like the whole album is about that. Yeah, you know, the relationship being long distance plus his his you know bad relationship with his parents and. I, I was surprised, and, and as far as concepts go... It's a very it's, loose one. <laughs> it's kind of light. I mean, yeah. like, as far as, like... Yeah, I mean, I never... <laughs> I, I knew vaguely that this was a concept record. I mean, I never really looked at it that way, because I, I never... Like, I know that... I know that various songs on it were not written for that purpose as well, mm-hmm. so I feel like that's just sort of... They're just like... Yeah, sure. Why not? But um, because, for example, one interesting fact about this album is the song Light Sleeper, which I think is one of the best tracks uh, personally, was actually written for the soundtrack of the Bad News Bears remake with Billy Bob Thornton. (laughs) And it was rejected because uh, they said it was too screamy. And I'm thinking, like, if you want Hawthorne Heights to do a song for your movie, why are you going to get upset if it's too screamy? But um uh yeah i don't know um um i i guess uh i was kind of curious the, the the title is also a uh replacements reference to that's like a b-side i think is with the same name which is interesting that a band like this would have a replacements influence on their i mean definitely because they were older at the time like if you like, I've listened to plenty of interviews with, with JT, the singer for this band, and he's definitely ahead. Like, he knows a lot of, uh, he just knows a lot of music. And the band that he was in before this one was, like, a Poison the Well type, like, metalcore band that he played bass in. <laughs> so I feel like he's much like myself, kind of just somebody who listens to a million different things. So that's probably where that came from. Uh, as far as the content of the record, like... I, I, I already, I commented on the production, like, it sounds huge. Lyrically, it's a little bit samey, definitely. <laughs> um, 
but I think, you know, it's just universally relatable and did what it had to do. One thing that I was pointing out is JT is like, is like very straight edge. And I, I, from what I know, he's like never drank or, or done drugs or anything, which was also like another reason that I connected with this band is I've been straight edge my entire life. But there's the line in the song, I'm on your side, where he says, like, I have no choice but to drink until I drown. And I've had a couple people point that out to me um, and been like, hey, why, why does he sing that if he, if he doesn't drink? And I found the answer to it. Interestingly, I read an interview from around the time that this album came out with Aaron, the drummer. And he said that, like, the lyrics that JT writes are not supposed to be taken as all coming from, like, his point of view. And that they all sound like relationship stories. And it's like, he said, like, yeah, it's all, like, boy-girl, like, falling in and out of love and whatever. Because, like, that's what he knows how to write very poetically. But there are about a thousand different things, like, and that song's about his parents. That song's about, like, his relationship with his parents. And uh, that's, like his father singing that line. So um, I found that to be super interesting. And that was another, that interview is one that I definitely uh, recommend checking out to people. I don't know where you'd find it. It was on like some random blog (laughs) from this point in time, but he talks about like them getting labeled as emo and uh, like, how do you feel about getting labeled as emo? And this was a point in time where every band was like, Oh, don't call us emo. We're just a rock band. Literally every single band. And he was like, I do feel that way but not for the same reason as the other bands and it's because he was like we all listen to sunny day real estate and the get up kids and mineral and like all these bands and we just like we don't feel like that is the type of music we make and that's what emo is to us so we just don't associate the two and i was like i i feel like that's very uh that's a very respectable thing to say i thought like they uh they they knew their roots yeah to be well yeah to be aware of the history of that genre and to say like we don't have anything to do with that like we're not we're not trying to emulate that we're not you know i i would say that there probably are some influences that do show so i don't think it's like totally out of the blue to call them emo and i mean that whole progression of of how all of this became known as emo and why we're on so many different yeah i mean waves of it (laughs) It's that's a whole other thing, but it is it is nice to see someone actually talk about it, reject that term, not because they don't want to be called that because they think it's probably what a lot of those people might have thought was that it makes them look like sissies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And to just say like, no, it's just different. It's actually just a different style of music, at least what we're trying to do. Yeah, I <laughs> that was that was definitely uh, my perception of it. Take it back. I always knew. I always knew. I knew it 
lot of there's a lot of trivia about the history of this album. This was really weird because obviously there's Victory Records, there's Tony Victory, and um, you know he was pretty no- <laughs> oh, yeah. pretty notoriously a huge scam artist. There were there was a massive massive lawsuit that stemmed from this album for mm-hmm. a whole number of reasons. The biggest and most publicized one being that victory had a promotion they they were the thing that they did to promote this album was they were having their street team uh hide neo records that mm-hmm. came out the same day or the cds i guess it wasn't so much vinyl at the time but uh the, they were having people hide the neo cds uh and put the hawthorne heights ones in their place so that more people would buy it and the the statement it said something awful like victory for rock music it was very like <laughs> rap is crap type nonsense and um you know, I, I read about that today, and I was like, it was like a press email that they did on behalf of the band telling them to, like, sabotage the sales <laughs> by, like, going into the store, picking up, like, a stack of them, acting like you're going to buy it, and then, like, leaving it somewhere else in the store <laughs> yep. so that it showed up in the store's inventory so they wouldn't reorder more, but customers coming in couldn't just, like, find it where it belongs. Which and is- so it was just like, what are you doing? doing you were actively sabotaging a specific artist i guess they assumed that that was going to be the one that was going to be number one that week so i I don't know like i mean i guess if you're like competing for if you're competing for number one i suppose but i'm thinking like like my thought process was always like the same people are not going to be buying the hawthorne heights and neo cds (laughs) but um yeah so i mean they sued and uh Got a bunch of money for that, I think rightfully so, because that was, like, <laughs> kind of horrible. I know some of the other uh, things that they sued for were, like, thrown out of court. But Yeah, I read a little bit about that, too. So they were basically suing, too, for, like, they weren't getting their royalties for the record. And, you know, like, you know, a number three Billboard charting record, you know, there's, you there's actually be getting money a lot there. of money for that. Yeah. <laughs> so they... They wound up, yeah, like two out of the three things they were asking for, they didn't get. But the one thing they did get was this, uh, they they apparently, their contract state didn't say that if they were signed to Victory, they couldn't sign with another label and release a record mm. through another label. Yeah. So they were contractually obligated to provide another record with Victory, which is why the next record comes out on Victory. Um but they could also just record with other labels too and release records with them too. So there's a, there was no like exclusivity contract, I guess, in there, which is very silly of Victory to forget I to mean, put that in there. <laughs> I don't I don't well, I don't think Tony was necessarily the most professional guy in the world. He was just somebody <laughs> who happened to have been in the right place at the right time. And mm-hmm. Victory is also so interesting to talk about because you see their progression like initially they were a label for bands like Snapcase and Dead Guy and stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, <laughs> that changed like pretty quickly once I mean, I don't think that Tony was a guy who also, like, maybe at the beginning he was into it for, you know, uh, the sake of, of the punk scene, but I, I don't really know. I also kind of think it might have just been who he knew at the time. But at this at this point in Victory's history, or at least once, you know, Thursday happened and Full Collapse happened, and he saw, you know, the potential for how huge that was, uh, it, it was all about money, and he was... At the same time, like, I don't really know what was going on in his brain, because he was signing so many bands that, well, I think are amazing. Like, I think if you look at the Victory Records roster around 
0506, it really doesn't get any better. Like, they had so many incredible bands, like uh, Spittlefield, uh, The Forecast, The Junior Varsity, just, like, really great, like, more indie rock-type emo bands that I don't, <laughs> I don't really know how he ever saw any of those getting huge, because it's not like any of them really, like, he genuinely thought Spittlefield was gonna be the next Jimmy Eat World, and, like, I love that band, but they are so much weirder than Jimmy Eat World. There was no way <laughs> there were gonna be a band on that level. Um... Wasn't, uh, oh no, they weren't fearless. I was going to say, I thought Portugal the Man was on victory at this time period, but no, fearless makes more sense. Yeah, fearless, so so the Portugal the Man, before they were in that band, I actually, I could break it out right now, before they were Portugal the Man, they had like a screamo band called uh, Anatomy of a Ghost, and they were they were great. They were like Alexis on fire type, like bordering on real screamo post hardcore. I actually have <laughs> I have a test pressing of the Anatomy of a Ghost record out of twenty. <laughs> so uh. Uh, I'm I'm a major collector of like all things related to Victory and Drive Through and like all these labels from this era. I'm literally staring right next to my computer right now as I have like all of my uh, Victory and Drive Through DVDs. Both like the label ones and the individual band ones, and uh, and Trust Kill DVDs as well for the the more uh, the heavier uh, stuff. But um, so I have yeah. the uh, the I wrote down a bunch of the the Victory records that came out in two thousand six. So I I feel like this is kind of funny just to like go through a couple. Yeah, of these. let's so, let's talk about them. <laughs> so we had they had Atreus, a Death Grip on yesterday. So uh, the Curse by Atreus is one of my favorite metalcore records ever. Everything after that, I really could not care less about for the most part. <laughs> um, that's my take on that uh, one. They also released, I'll keep it in that vein a little bit. Uh, they released Aiden, Rain in Hell. It's like an EP, but also like a live DVD too. I, I own that. Um, <laughs> I am. My take on Aiden is I'm a huge fan. I think they're a terrible band. I don't think there's like anything <laughs> redeemable about them at all, but I think they're sick. So I like them. <laughs> Uh, the vocalist is apparently, like, a really bad guy, like, not a good guy at all, Mm. um, but I like anything that is, like, about blood and vampires and spooky, so I love that (laughs) stupid band. So, there's a Bayside Acoustic EP as well, um, and then it gets, it gets weird. So, uh, we'll, we'll do, I'll go into the metalcore realm because that's that's the other thing they're kind of known for from this time period so that year they released between the buried and me's anatomy of yep the covers covers album. record uh barrier dead's beauty in the breakdown uh that might be a live record too i'm not sure um and dead to falls the phoenix throne see <laughs> these were when i was like young and watching the victory dvds that came with my cds those were the bands that i always skipped over their videos because i didn't care um the other stuff is probably more like like the more emo indie stuff is more like what i was into i think and here's my favorite uh this is also the same year that they released uh Streetlight Manifesto's version of Keysby Nights and Catch 22's Permanent Revolution. So they were doing those records at that time too. <laughs> yeah, I mean all this stuff is weird because Tony just seems like a very money-driven guy, but at the same time like if you're super after money, why are you signing these bands particularly? Like Hawthorne Heights, Taking Back Sunday, Silverstein, like that stuff that totally makes sense. Like he was going to make bank off all that. But like, mm-hmm. I don't know, the rest of them, I'm like, hmm. He I, has a bunch of other things that came out that year too, but they're all bands that I didn't even know. Like All In 
Like, I don't remember that band at all. I'm unfamiliar like, with that one. So, <laughs> some of the ones that you don't know, I probably do know. But um, I think when you consider how Victory formed as a label, it makes sense why they maintain a lot of the heavy stuff. Because mm-hmm. that was their legacy. That was what, that's where Tony came yeah. from. He came from hardcore. Warzone was on there. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it, it definitely makes sense to keep all that stuff. And and then, like, they had, what they had Catch-22. That was their yeah. that was their ska, their ska band, band during the ska crossover era. So I mean, that could easily be where it starts as far as his like let's try and grab whatever is gonna sell. Because um, Catch Twenty Two was definitely signed at a point where you could potentially have a crossover hit with a ska band. Yeah, and Connecticut was actually the center for for ska at that point. Like. Connecticut was the scene was entirely ska up until like the late 2000s which is interesting to hear some of my older friends talk about because I was not around for it and I can say that I'm not really a ska fan but no but but I I respect it yeah Yeah. I mean but I think also he was just it's also easy to like release records by bands when you're basically not paying them so yeah, <laughs> and you're making a lot of money off of quite a few of your artists and you're just yeah. you're not paying them and you're just taking all that money and and you know paying for what all of the insane things it, that tony victory would <laughs> spend his money on that, that is true i'm also um, man, i'm just thinking about the portugal the man thing now because all the scene labels like right after like this era like i'd say the next year 2007 we're all starting to sign like weird indie bands made mm-hmm. up of former hardcore guys because they thought that was like the move and the one on victory was this band called moros eros who absolutely like never did anything big but i i think are an incredibly good band they have a release in 06 as well who was in that band do you know i i don't know any of their names it was uh they had two records they were both great in my opinion i i used to run a blog on instagram actually where i would talk about it was at the beginning of quarantine i started it because i was unemployed and not in school and really bored so i would talk (laughs) about one album like from this era every single day i would write like a a review of it and it but it had to be an album that was either not on streaming services or if it was had like under a thousand monthly listeners (laughs) and moros eros was one of the ones that i talked about You you wanted the obscure stuff from this time period? Yeah, because that's the thing. Like, I'm really into things that are underrated, and it's not because I want to be pretentious and be like, oh, I know this band that you don't. It's literally just because I feel like over time there have just been so many great bands that no one has heard, and the depths of victory, I think, are filled with those. Yeah. I, I feel that way with, like, Tooth and Nail Records. Yeah. That's one that I'm like... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're like... They were they were they were pushed into the Christian music market. So then, like basically, if they didn't fit a specific mold in that market, they weren't going to have any success within that market. And then no success outside of that market because they were pigeonholed as a Christian band. So yeah, one of the most interesting things that I actually learned about Tooth and Nail recently was that a bunch of bands who were signed to the label like never had any religious connection at all or like christian oh, yeah. connection mm-hmm. at all like the cl- yeah. the classic crime were never religious the juliana theory were never religious which was a surprise to me like brett even when he was in zeo was like not christian he was just like <laughs> in that scene i guess which is absolutely wild to me but um well yeah i mean most of zeo 
basically wasn't Christian or was like on their way to not being Christian the yeah. entire time they were on tooth and on solid state. So because I mean, and they were stuck there because it's like, well, the old version of this band yeah. signed a, a ridiculous contract and they were super Christian. i know that like the classic crime or one band that like they were upset when their record came out that it was it kept charting on like the gospel and christian whatever charts (laughs) and they were like but we're not even a christian band i'm like well if you didn't want that then maybe you shouldn't have really signed a tooth and nail but (laughs) yeah well tooth and nail used to love to do that thing where they would be like we're not a christian label that's not we we'll release all kinds of music it's just we'll have we have an exclusive deal with christian records or christian music stores yeah (laughs) there there is one christian music store left in connecticut and I go there all the time, and I, I will preface that, like, I've never been religious. Like, I, I didn't even, like, grow up having to listen to Christian <laughs> music or anything. I just love so much of it that I will, like, go, I'll go there and be like, yes, they have the new Emery CD, and I'll get, like, really stoked. <laughs> um, oh, those hillbillies from Rock Hill. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny, we've... We haven't really talked about this. <laughs> I'm album. so sorry. No, like it's funny because there's so much like around it that I wanted to talk about too. That I was just like, because I don't, man, I don't know how much there is to say about the content of the record. Really, like it's good. So, there's a lot going on in it that definitely. Like the thing is, I don't know that they were really breaking any molds or anything with it. They were just the band that made it the most palatable to the widest group of people. Yeah. Um, so I specifically read the alt press review of this album in 2006 when it came out, and so like in the very like beginning first paragraph, they're like, uh, "They're not doing anything new here. It's good. It's not great, and it's not very innovative." So it was just like, "Wow, alt press, who is like 100% the market for this type of record." <laughs> Even they were like, eh, it's fine. Well, I see the reason that I think it's great personally is just because like this is a band that was specifically like geared toward me. I feel like I'm into anything that is like, I mean, and now I like a lot weirder music, but especially at the time or at least, you know, I got into it a couple years later. But when I was getting into this type of music, anything that was like spooky, but not like overwhelmingly threatening was like perfect for me. And <laughs> because <laughs> like i don't know there were definitely stuff like atreyu and whatever was was a bit too dark for me like this was this was like right in the sweet spot and you know i love theatrics like i was always i've never been like a musical theater guy or anything like that but i was always like theater kid adjacent like i was a kid who loved the nightmare before christmas and like the dresden dolls and stuff and this is like this is like perfect for a kid like that i think this was like just perfect for me and um it's just it's super catchy i mean the 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 first track um this is who we are like that opening that you know that's it's super huge and epic sounding whenever i'm doing something cool that's what plays in my head um I'm I'm trying to think like saying sorry is like dumb catchy even though I think it's honestly like one of the weaker tracks on the record. I have um I have the official DVD right here. Let me see. Let's <laughs> take a look at uh oh it doesn't have the track listing on here. Hold on. Let me I actually have the whole record. I will just grab it one second so I can be looking at the track listing. <laughs> Yeah, so it really cannot be understated. I am a massive, massive fan of this band. I have every one of their LPs on vinyl. 
Um, <laughs> how many is that? Five, six? Uh, it's it's like I think seven or eight at this point. Oh wow! Which okay. is also the amount of times I've seen them. It's been around seven or eight. Um, I'm I'm just gonna because I feel bad that like I haven't really talked about <laughs> any of the tracks so far. I'm just gonna go through a little bit. We are so last year is one of the stronger ones in my opinion. The second song, yeah. Um, extremely catchy chorus. Without the screaming, it could almost be like a cute as what we aim for song or something. <laughs> like it could almost be like a neon pop rock song without the screaming. Um, pens and needles was one of the big hits uh that's a that's a great song interesting um interesting like programmed percussion on that one of the few times that they do that uh dead in the water is one of the heavier songs so that's that's Mm -hmm. a pretty standout track uh overall i think side b is like a little bit weaker than side a it trails a bit toward the end uh but december's is a really good ballad uh where can i stab myself in the ears is a very fun (laughs) riff the anytime they talk about that song title is very funny to me because apparently it was on absolutepunk.net which is um a quarter of the internet i've had to leave because it's you know very toxic generally (laughs) um somebody that when this album got announced or when it announced that they were going to the studio for it somebody said where can i stab myself in the ears and they saw that and thought it was funny because that makes no sense (laughs) um Yeah, Light Sleeper was that was the uh, the Bad News Bears song, which I think is one of the uh, one of the stronger tracks as well because it's just insanely catchy. Once again, like I think the best songs on here are ones that without the screaming could be like neon pop rock songs. Like um, I'm trying to think of what's like a good example, like almost like Yellow Card, but even like more saccharine a little bit. And I think they were really great at doing that. I think that's why. I, the next album after this one, Fragile Future, is great, is because it's just a, a pop rock album like that. And I think they would have also made a bit of a different impression if that was their first album. I think they would have been more... Uh, I, I think there would be more nostalgia for them now. I think if they had come out with a single without any screaming, like um, Rescue Me off that album, it would have really blown them up uh, to like a massive, massive level. Not that they weren't big. Um but <laughs> I think the screaming is kind of what turned off people who were older than, like, early high school at the time because of how it sounded, really. And now, like, I, I really don't have an issue with it. Like, I enjoy how it sounds, but, like, I can see why it turned people off, definitely. Um, Dylan, what's your, what, like, you mentioned a little early, very early on in the episode that you kind of landed on the middle of it. What, what was your take on the album after you actually, you know, got past your preconceived notions? So it's 44 minutes long. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it's unnecessarily long. I, you know, I think you could maybe trim one song and it would, it would be a nice tight record, but mm-hmm. even as it is, it's not like overwhelming. It's not sprawling. It doesn't really go on too long and while it's i think it's you know by nature theatrical music it's not overwrought and Mm. there's not a lot of unnecessary embellishment to try and like create some melodrama the songs just kind of stand on their own and you can listen to the lyrics and get the story out of it and it serves its purpose it doesn't need to have like full orchestration or anything and there's a little bit of like bigger production they do some kind of like studio stuff but it's not like it's not on every song and it's not like uh, it just seems like 
they were working on it in the studio and they had a little idea and they were like, let's try it on this song. And it generally works on every, every time they do it. Uh, you mentioned yeah. the program, the, the little bit of programming drums on here that it's like, yeah, they're fine. Like it was a stylistic choice, not necessarily one I would make, but it was, it doesn't detract from it either. Like, another, uh, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Now I was going to say another like really fun fact about the production of this album that I thought was interesting was, um, cause they did a little retrospective about the making of four AP, like a couple years ago. And, um, they said that they held a contest for, it was like 10 or 15 fans, um, could enter and they would come out to the studio to do gang vocals on, uh, I believe breathing in sequence was the song with the gang vocals on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might be wrong though. I specifically wrote and down there's one with gang vocals. Yeah, breathing and sequence. Breathing and sequence yeah, gang vocals. Yeah, with some layering on the vocals. Yeah. So yep. the funny thing is that it turned out that two of the the few selected people who ended up going to do the gang vocals on that were very young uh, members of Ice Nine Kills, which they said that <laughs> they they played a festival together like years later. And the the dudes from Ice Nine Kills came up to them and were like, "Yeah, we were we were like some of the kids who won that contest to come and like do gang <laughs> vocals on your album." They were like, "Wow, Weird. that's sick." <laughs> um, when I was listening to it today, I was like, I listened to it last week for the first time. Listen to it again today as I was making my notes. Um, ultimately, I think the record's biggest problem is that it does have a little sameness going on, especially like the further you get into the record. Yeah. I think it's one of those ones where like it's it just gets weaker as it progresses throughout the album. I, it's one of those what is it the law of diminishing returns? Like there's yeah, they I have I can uh, no, I can agree with that. I th- I just think it ends strong. Like I think the last like couple tracks like really are a bit of an upswing on it, but for the most part, yes. Yeah, they yeah, I think the best songs are probably the first four five tracks like everything through saying sorry i was like this is good i like these but there is also kind of like the same skeleton of in all of these songs like they almost have like the same they all do this thing where like they start with this really big riff like this really just like whoa that that guitar line's really great like i love that and then they like cut it right down to more like like a a plinky like non-distorted guitar riff or just like some simple like light plucking like it was it's not like driving on the verses and then they come in with the chorus that's almost always just like a a choppy like almost hardcore style you know guitar rhythm and it's just like it's so it was funny because like listening to it i was like i want that driving like intro riffing that almost all of these songs have to be like the main either the main verse or the main chorus or something because like Uh, yeah i can i can understand that for sure it's it's yeah it's like they it would it just i was listening and i was like it's the same like first three steps now like the stuff they do after the chorus tends to change very a little more throughout the record but it is always like those first three steps are always the same three things and if they had done like the big huge riffs like they start the songs with and like made that more of like the actual song itself i feel like they could have had maybe even more mainstream success i think because i think there there's a little maybe it's them knowing about jimmy Eat world and that kind of stuff i feel like they could have had like a huge almost pop rock album but they were like so devoted to the like we're a uh, kind of a scene emo 
post-hardcore band. So like, yeah, and it's interesting because I do I do feel like they made some of those moves later on. Like their um, their last album, Bad Frequencies, has a lot more like just riffing throughout the tracks. And same mm-hmm. with a, uh, they put out an album in I believe 2011, which is one of my favorite releases of theirs called Hate. That is just like like hardcore. It's not like hardcore, but <laughs> like very hardcore influenced, like chanting. Like the riff is the main part of the song. And it's just like, I don't know, I feel like because they dipped in popularity so hard after this record, like, definitely, in part because of the death of Casey, and in an even larger part because of the struggles with Victory Records, um, I don't know, I, I feel like people would just view them as a completely different band if the stuff post this album was even, like, really in the popular consciousness. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, my my conception of them was that they were a two record band. Like I kind of just, I mean, I knew that they kept going, but it was always just like, I only am aware of those first two records. And then after that, it's just, they just completely drop off. And you know, Casey's passing is definitely a not, I mean, an understandable reason why a band would kind of just slow down. Yeah. (laughs) Essentially immediately after such a really big successful record. Um, it is interesting to me that they. I feel like it, this was an this was something that I was thinking of while I was listening to the record. Kind of goes along with how my conception of them changed by listening to it, where I landed in the middle on it. I'm surprised that they are not a band that people are attempting to reevaluate. I'm surprised that they're not a band that people have gone back and said, "Hey, that was." They were a good band. Those were good songs. That was a good record, and they have other records. I think uh, it's. I think it is happening just slowly, like much more slowly than it is for a lot of other bands. Because even now, like with the past record, like they signed to Pure Noise, which is like a pretty big label uh, yeah. in the scene. They're playing to bigger rooms now than they were five years ago, and I think it's because. Admittedly, they did have a bit of a lull for a while where they they put out a couple records that were not that great, but the newest one is, I I think, really got people's attention again, and I think that, you know, it's actually funny timing for this because literally last night, Pure Noise tweeted and said there's going to be a new Hawthorne Heights LP before the end of 2021. Where's the zeitgeist, Dylan? Yep. It's our our (laughs) thing that we've, we've constantly... Somehow, when we do this show... We almost always, I'd say maybe 50% of the time, wind up talking about something, a band or something related to whatever we're talking about, winds up being in like the music news around the same time. It, we, we it's keep a good luck charm. <laughs> we're subconscious, we're, we're somehow embedded into like the greater punk zeitgeist that we're just, we're, we always talk about <laughs> it and then like two days later we'll go, well, there's a new story about that thing. <laughs> it's it's actually the funniest thing is they specifically said in their tweet, "This is going to be the best record since if only you were lonely." <laughs> so, um, we'll see. Maybe it'll I don't know, maybe it'll get people to reevaluate them even more. But there are definitely uh, there's definitely been a little bit of a resurgence with people looking back and being like, "This band is actually pretty good." And I'm for that because mm-hmm. listening to this record, like I said, it's not mine. It's not a band that I'm really invested in. It's not a record I'm going to go buy. But yeah. for this style and this sound, I think that it's something that the songs themselves have aged very well. Like, it's mm-hmm. not 
you're not you don't listen to it and go oh that's terrible turn that off like i i you know unless you just absolutely hate this style of music but yeah like by the standards of this genre like it's good there's a reason it sold so well when it came out but yeah i mean i i think that compared to a lot of the not good people (laughs) that were making music (laughs) in this genre at that time and how much of it shows in their music and in their lyrics. Hawthorne Heights are refreshing to me because it's like, these are just good dudes. Like, they're just good guys (laughs) who wrote this style of music well. And And it seems a bit more genuine than maybe some other bands around the same time, I feel. And I guess maybe there's something to that as to maybe why they've just kind of been forgotten. Because it is very earnest. There's a there's like, a lot of heart in it for sure, definitely, and, and that's I think, something that's I think hard that's, to look at. That is the thing that I love the most. I think that is really what draws me because, like, I can sit and think about it for days and be like, "Yeah, every song kind of sounds the same," and be like, "So why is this like my favorite band then?" And it's because there's like they do earnesty really like no one else, and that's like even in the modern like scene revival sort of like people are like oh, you know, uh, 100 Gex is, like, reviving the sounds of MySpace. And it's like, I loved all those MySpace artists, and I don't like 100 Gex. And I think it's because they do it with so much, like, there's an air of irony to it. Like, look at what Mm -hmm. we're doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back when these bands were a thing, there was, that, that just wasn't there. It was, like, you know, so earnest. And so, and I think that's why people cringe at it, kind of. But for me, it has the exact opposite effect. Like, I'm I'm going to cringe more five years from now at all the people who are making super ironic music now than I ever am at, like, any of this stuff, honestly. Yeah, I'm trying to remember that specific time period. There there was a level of just... A, there was a type of artist, too, that was very much just like, this is popular now, we're doing this now. Well, like yeah. That, I mean, that there, that there was plenty of that, but... That's more cynical, I guess, than ironic, uh, than... But there was a lot more earnesty, which maybe also explain why so many bands from this time period have lyrics that are awful. <laughs> yeah, be- because it was so earnest from like really young guys, and like, oh no, these lyrics are super misogynist. Well, a nineteen-year-old doesn't n- understand that they're being misogynist. They're just like, why won't she like me? I mean, well, that, and that's that- the funny. Thing that about this is, oh sorry continue <laughs> like what you were saying about like the way that he writes like it's all about like boyfriend girlfriend breakup kind of like trappings but like really the songs are about other things like yep. he's using that so there is like a there's a degree of like workmanship or like theater or artifice if you want to think of it that way where it's like there's a separation from the artist and the art that he's making and the lyrics that he's writing but it's it's since it's trying to communicate sincere feelings through a certain aesthetic. Yes. And I think that's what is really impressive to me and really charming to me about this record is like you are working within a an aesthetic and saying something meaningful. And it's not just like confessional writing where you m- tend to get like the like ugh you should have not said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That and he was 30. Right. I mean, I think a 30-year-old is, for the most part, is going to be emotionally stable enough to understand, like, maybe I should, like, maybe not go, like, hardcore, he, like... He literally, <laughs> he was married and had a kid the year, right. that, the year that this came out. 
<laughs> so and but something to be said about you know maturity in this type of music the, the thing i was gonna say about that census fail album we talked about earlier is that i believe that their drummer was 15 years old when they that is how young they were like they were high schoolers yeah. and that is one of those things that i love that record so much that like when i think about that i'm like god i need to just give up <laughs> but um well don't give up because uh jt was 30 when they had their billboard charting record so you got plenty of time <laughs> I, I there's tons of great artists out right now who are older than i am who inspire mm-hmm. me and they're having their moment and kind of like they're on their way up um so there's there's room for us old guys at the top (laughs) (laughs) well i i feel like we've 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 sufficiently discussed the elements of 2006 post-hardcore and and emo and it's my apologies that we didn't get into really talking about the album until like an hour and a half into the episode (laughs) but um there's so much not there's so much around this time period that's so there interesting really to talk about. There really is. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think if you went song by song through this record, we'd wind up being just kind of redundant with what we were saying. Pretty so much, like, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like we did a pretty good job of uh, talking about the album as a whole. So uh, let's wrap up here. Uh, please tell everyone where we can get a hold of arms like roses music and follow you online and all that good stuff yeah absolutely um we have a uh we have instagram is probably uh our most frequent uh use social media it's just at arms like roses we're at arms like roses ct on twitter um we have Bandcamp and spotify and every other streaming service um we just put up our cds and tapes uh on our merch store unlimited run uh, like two days ago so uh basically just find our instagram or our twitter or our facebook and start from there because you'll find links to everything else and we always ask our guests to send us out on a charity or non-profit that they would like to bring some attention to so do you have any in particular uh yeah there were i think two that i wanted to mention uh one just in the spirit of this episode and all the things that we discussed um Andrew McMahon from Jack's Mannequin and Something Corporate has his charity, the Dear Jack Foundation, uh, for childhood leukemia, which is definitely one to look into, as well as uh, we actually just had an 8-bit remix of one of our songs uh, on a charity compilation that Far From Home Records uh, did. Uh, It's available on their Bandcamp uh, for the uh, Pablo Ramirez Foundation uh, for Go Skateboarding Day, which uh, is funding for... um, like uh, music and arts and other extracurricular programs for uh, kids in schools. So uh, those are, those are, I think the two things that I would recommend checking out. Awesome. I'll make sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for doing the show. This was a lot of fun. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate that. I was able to come and, you know, nerd out about my space emo for almost yeah. two hours. So <laughs> uh, thank you. Awesome. Thank you.